This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present two candidates for the state Supreme Court, Justice G. Helen Whitener and Justice Raquel Montoya Lewis. Both of these candidates are running to retain the seats they were appointed to this year by Governor Inslee, and they are in every way extraordinary. Each has had a long and distinguished career as attorneys and on the bench, and each represents history. Justice Whitener is the first black woman to serve on the Washington Supreme Court, the fourth immigrant-born justice, and the first openly black LGBT judge in the state of Washington. Justice Montoya Lewis is the first Native American justice to serve on the Washington State Supreme Court, and the second Native American to serve on a state Supreme Court nationwide. I am very excited to present this wide-ranging discussion, which was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, August 18th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's town hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I am the host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. And I would actually like to start out this evening by pointing out that tonight is our 20th town hall. I am just so proud uh, of and very inspired by our team, Kat Pipkin of the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski, Indivisible Tacoma. Um, a huge thanks to both of you and your amazing work. I am so glad to be doing this project with you. And uh, for tonight's show, uh, a special thanks to Aaron Albanese, Will Casey, and Jason Ritterizer for their help in preparation. And of course, thanks to all of you for joining us tonight. Whether you are joining us live or are listening via the podcast, you are watching uh, via YouTube, or you are listening on one of the terrestrial radio stations that carries the podcast, we are very, very happy to have you with us. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral homelands of many indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest. We wish to express our deepest respect and gratitude to our indigenous neighbors for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. So tonight we are going to be speaking with two incredible candidates for the state Supreme Court. And I will just say up front, we have a jam-packed program. Uh, many of you have submitted questions. Thank you for that. Uh, I've uh, done my best to work those into the program. We may have time for a few more questions, so please do enter those into the chat bar, and we'll try to get to those. And, you know, just before we start, I, I do want to stress just how extraordinary both of these candidates are. Uh, both were appointed to the bench earlier this year, and they are running to keep their seat. And it is our aim tonight to not only show you why they must absolutely retain their place on the Supreme Court, but also to get you really excited about their campaign. So let's meet our candidates. Justice G. Helen Whitener was appointed to the state Supreme Court in April of this year. She is a former Pierce County Superior Court judge, a former judge on the Washington State Board of Industri Industrial Insurance Appeals, and a former pro tem judge in Pierce County District Court, as well as the city of Tacoma Municipal Court. Justice Whitener also previously worked as a prosecuting and defense attorney. She is a faculty member at Washington Courts, where she teaches new judicial officers, and she also teaches a street law civics class to high school seniors at Lincoln High School in Tacoma. Justice Whitener, good evening to you. And also with us is Justice Raquel Montoya Lewis. She was appointed to the state Supreme Court in January. She is the first Native American justice to serve on the Washington State Supreme Court and the second Native American to serve on a state Supreme Court nationwide. Justice Montoya Lewis has spent her career as a practicing attorney, a tribal court judge, superior court judge, associate professor, and advocate for juvenile justice reform, equity, and tribal communities. She is a graduate of the University of New Mexico and the University of Washington School of Law. She is an enrolled member of the Pueblo Isleta, a federally, and please, you'll have to let me know in a moment if, if I got that pronunciation sure. wrong, uh, a federally recognized tribe in New Mexico. Justice Montoya Lewis, welcome to you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I would love to just uh, take a moment and have both of you introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Justice Whitener, may we start with you? Well, I think you covered it. Um, I don't know what else to add. I am um, immigrant-born from the island of Trinidad and Tobago. My background is in international marketing before law school, and I think you covered my law school and legal career up to the Supreme Court. So I don't think I have much else to add. 
<laughs> well, I try to do my homework, and I, I try to be as thorough as possible. Uh, Justice Montoya Lewis, we'll turn to you. Uh, would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Thank you. Um, and I'll just uh, let you know my, my tribe is called the Pueblo of Isleta. Uh, So you were very close. So that was good. Um, So uh, I appreciate that that introduction. I've been a judge for 20 years. I served as a tribal court judge for multiple tribes for 15 years. I was the chief judge for several uh, Pacific Northwest tribes. And so I've had a wide range of experience with a variety of judicial systems that all reflected uh, the needs of their individual communities. Um, In 2015, I was appointed to Superior Court and served as a Superior Court judge hearing uh, all kinds of cases, criminal felony trials that ranged from uh, relatively minor felonies all the way up to murder cases, uh, family law cases, child welfare cases, juvenile cases, um, as well as civil jury trials of, of all kinds. So I have a pretty wide range of experience. Um, And when this uh, position came open, when Justice Fairhurst, Chief Justice Fairhurst announced her retirement, I I was uh, frankly a a little bit hesitant uh, to to apply for the position. Um, There was, as I have said a a couple of times publicly, before I went to law school, I'd never met a lawyer, much less a judge. And the idea that I would um, be in a position to be considered for a Supreme Court justice appointment just uh, seemed extraordinary. Um, and so it, it took me a while to really come around to the idea that this was the right next step in my career. I, I'm incredibly uh, honored to be appointed by Governor Inslee, uh, and, and I understand the historic nature of my appointment. The, the first um, eight months or so of my, of my tenure on the court has been exciting. I, my colleagues have been incredibly welcoming. I've been thrilled to work on issues I've worked on for decades and also really excited at learning many new things. It's been a sharp learning curve and it's been a real um, challenge to do that during uh, during COVID. But uh, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we've we uh, managed to get through, uh, through this and uh, I'm just very excited to be here. So thank you. We're excited that you're here too. And I'm especially grateful that you decided to make the move to put yourself in for consideration. And you touched on the historic nature of your being on the bench. As I mentioned, you are the first Native American justice to serve on the Washington State Supreme Court and only the second Native American to serve on a state Supreme Court nationwide. And Justice Whitener, you are the first black woman to serve on the Washington State Supreme Court. You were the fourth immigrant-born justice and the first openly black LGBT judge in the state of Washington. And, And I will ask you a question that is a little bit difficult to assess, but I'm curious how each of you Think about your own personal background and identity and and how the way those things inform your views on jurisprudence. Uh, Justice Montoya Lewis, could we start with you on that? Sure. Um, You know, I think that I have been pleasantly surprised and inspired by how much the phrase representation matters is actually the case. I've had and, you know, nine-year-olds come and talk to me about what it means to be on the Supreme Court and what it means to them to have me there. Um, so that certainly influences my, my view as a justice because I recognize that what we're doing on the court um, is, is so important. And uh, the, the incredible diversity of all kinds on our Supreme Court, uh, I think, really gives us um, – an incredibly wide range of of viewpoints and perspectives. And I think that makes us better. It is difficult, I think, for us to come to agreement on many things. Um, And it's the the work of real diversity is hard work. Um, But I I really see that as resulting in better answers uh, and, and answers that are more reflective of the community that we serve. Well, as you say, uh, representation matters. Uh, The same question to you, Justice Whitener. How do you think about your background, your identity, and how those things intersect and inform your views on jurisprudence? Well, that's a really interesting question. I am so marginalized, as you've indicated in in, uh, your introduction of me, that when I thought about it and I think about it since getting to the high court, I realize my marginalization is one of disenfranchisement. It's one of not being included. 
So my lens are a little different than most in that I see from outside the box the exclusionary way the legal system has operated in regards to the others, the marginalized groups. So I think my jurisprudence in the entire legal system throughout my, my journey, in the entire legal system has been one of disenfranchisement. And, and so my lens is skewed in that regard. So I tend to see, my jurisprudence tends to see the other and how the law impacts the other, which tends to cover a wide range of individuals. I have some very carefully uh, formulated questions for you on those subjects, So, uh, but hold that thought. Uh, I would also like to ask about your experience as both a prosecutor and a defense attorney. Is this unique for a judge, uh, I will ask you? And also, do you feel that that has come to inform your, your work and your views as a judge? It, it, it is unique in, in a, a sense in that... Um, well, what's unique about it for me is not just that I've done prosecution and defense, but I've done it on all three trial levels, courts, municipal, district, as well as uh, superior court. And I've been a judicial officer on all three levels of the trial level court. And um, I, do, I do think it has impacted the way I view the criminal justice system or the justice system as a whole in that I've been on the side of protecting the community, so to speak, as a prosecutor and bringing charges and holding individuals accountable for their acts. But I've also defended individuals who've been charged with committing crimes. And um, I've also been a defense attorney privately. So I've also defended individuals in civil matters. Um, I do think it's important to have that balance sometimes because I'm a trial, I'm a trial judge, I'm a trial lawyer. I came up through the ranks paying my dues that way. So I'm, I'm more of a practical, I take a practical approach to analyzing the law and viewing the law. Um, I think in a way it's, it's, um, it's a realistic approach because it's the every man's approach. You know, I've, I've walked in his shoe, her shoes, um, and with my marginalization, it brings a different perspective to the discussion. So it's not just based on race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or immigration status. It's based on experience as well, and experience in all the trial-level courts. It's really quite extraordinary, uh, everything that you bring to the job. Uh, and, and likewise with you, Justice Montoya-Lewis, you mentioned that you worked extensively as a, as a tribal judge, and I, I think that people might be very interested to hear a little bit about that, and also how that has informed your work this year on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I, uh, it is unusual um, to be uh, in the state court system after having been a tribal court judge. There are very few examples of that. Uh, uh, Justice Susan Owens actually did serve on a on a tribal court uh, prior to um, to municipal, her municipal court and Supreme Court positions. So it, it's not uh, it's not unheard of, but it is it is fairly rare. As as I've uh, kind of indicated, working for a multitude of communities um, has given me a, an extraordinary perspective because what I've been able to do in those tribal courts um, it, it is really work in communities that have developed courts that actually reflect those individual communities' values and what they want from a legal system. So I worked in the Lummi Tribal Court, which was uh, a court that has a courtroom that's that would look like any other courtroom that you walked into um, and, and functions in many ways, although not always uh, in, in that manner. Uh, I also was the chief judge for the Upper Skagit Indian Tribe, which um, had court once a month around a, a table that I sat at. I never wore a robe. It was a much more conversational, collaborative kind of a position. And then I worked for the Nooksack Indian Tribe, which uh, hired me to develop their court system from effectively uh, nothing and develop, figure out what the community wanted in a legal system and develop that system from there. So having had the opportunity um, to, to, to think about what it means uh, to, to do justice, to develop a legal system that truly reflects what people want, I think is a pretty unique view to bring into the state court system. Uh, so I'm, I'm really proud of that work, and uh, it, it absolutely informs my thinking about what we can do in the state courts. Well, having a court that reflects the community it serves is uh, another area around which I formulated, again, a very careful question for you that I, I do want to get your, your thoughts on. 
I think people would be very curious to know how one runs for the bench. It is not like running for elected office where you take, you know, you make promises and you take strong stands on issues. In fact, it seems like it might be just the opposite. So give us maybe, if you will, a little bit of insight, uh, Justice Montoya-Lewis, what the process is like running for a judicial seat. How do you interact with voters? Well, it, it is very different because we act, we cannot make promises. We can't talk about anything that might uh, come in front of us. And certainly on the Supreme Court, that could be virtually anything. So it is it is very difficult. I, I think that, and, and it's that much more complex having to do it in a, in a virtual world. I was lucky enough as a Superior Court judge uh, that I, I didn't have opposed uh, opponents in either of uh, the elections I, I ran in. Um, but in this in this case, I do, and and it's been um, a pretty remarkable experience to to uh, to run in this election. I've seen extraordinary engagement of all kinds, um, and extraordinary questions from uh, community members, from people and organizations that I'm seeking endorsement from, and, and really for me, what I hope to convey uh, in that role uh, as a as a candidate is who I am. Um, I I it is very important to me that we begin to think about as a legal system what it means to have a system that many people, many communities don't trust. And and I hoped that in the course of people getting to know me, that they feel that they can share those thoughts with me and develop some trust uh, by hearing about who I am and my, and my story and also um, by being willing to take advantage of what I view as, as kind of an open door to really share with me what their experiences have, have been. And, and that's really how I think you can run as a judicial candidate, given that you can't talk about so many things that people want to know the answer to. But I think we can talk about how we think and who we are and, uh, you know, and, I, and, and talk about our experiences prior to taking the bench. Uh, and I'm hopeful that those are things that that resonate with um, with voters. I'm having to bite my tongue because I have a million follow-up questions on so much <laughs> of what you just said. But Justice Whitener, I would love your insight on this as well uh, in terms of your experience running for a judicial seat and the way that you interact with voters that you absolutely can promise nothing to. Uh, how are you finding that experience? Well, in 2012, I attempted to run for Superior Court. So I ran a campaign in 2012. I was not successful. I learned a lot about how to go about it the right way. Um, and then in 2015, the governor appointed me to Superior Court. So that's when I came on. Um, in 2015, I had to run because you get appointed, but you have to run at the next election cycle. And I had to run then. I did not get an opponent. In 2016, all of the Superior Court judges were up for election that year. So I had to run again, did not get an opponent. And then I got appointed to the Supreme Court in April of this year, just when I made the five years. Justice Montoya Lewis and I actually went to judicial college at the same time. So I was really happy when she got there. And then to see me, you know, just follow her was just truly um, a dream come true, to be perfectly honest. And then we get here and um, we have to run. I got appointed in April and I had to basically launch a campaign the next month. Um, it's different in a virtual world. When I ran in 2012, we had to get out there and meet the constituents, the people that we are going to be serving. And I see this as a service profession um, as judicial officers. So I met individuals and that I think shaped how I handled becoming a Superior Court judge in 2015 by appointment, in that I truly believe it's important to connect with your community. And my approach was to connect with my community throughout my judicial tenure, and then also bring the community into the court. So I took an, uh, an approach of educating the community and the community edu educating me on, on what's going on, because we cannot uh, make promises but what we can show is our character and what we can show is who we are by connecting with them. So then now we get to 2020 and we're in this virtual world and I'm meeting everyone like this evening on this virtual platform. The interesting thing is I was appointed in a virtual world. I have been operating the last term in a virtual world and I have gotten so used now to meeting people in this virtual world that I am actually 
wondering what it would be like to not be in a virtual world when the pandemic is over and I'm sitting on the bench with my colleagues, assuming everything goes well in November. So um, I think it's very important to connect with people, let people understand that we're human. Um, we don't have all the answers, but we try to do the best that we can. And by saying that and showing them that, they can understand the nuance of the judiciary that is different than legislative races or political races, where promises can be made, whereas in ours, they can't. Well, one of the ways that you must uh, distinguish yourself is uh, from yourself and your opponent. And by the way, I just as a side note, I have to say I 100% agree with everything that you said about existing in this virtual world. We have done this town hall series entirely in the virtual world. Virtual. We have been all over the state. We would have logged thousands of miles at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I, I hear you 100% on that. I do want you to, to touch on, on your opponent. And here's why. Um, you're running against an opponent who has never served as a judge. And to me, and this is my opinion, he seems deeply unqualified, uh, particularly compared with your extraordinary record. As you say, you've served at all three trial levels. What are your thoughts about why he has chosen to run against you? I think it's probably on his bucket list. Um, but having said that, I, <laughs> I can't answer that question for why someone does something. What I can say is... It's a nuance in our Constitution, and I think it's Article 4, Section 17, because I had to go check it, whereby all that's required for the Superior Court and and the Supreme Court is that you be um, a bar-qualified lawyer, and the Constitution allows that. So here we have an individual who was bar-qualified this past February, got sworn in as, um, as a lawyer in April, actually, the day that I got announced for this position by the governor, he was sworn in as an attorney. But he became bar qualified May 8th. So May 8th, just before filing week, he um, or within filing week, actually, he um, exercised his constitutional right to run for the Supreme Court. And I, I think, you know, that's what the Constitution is about. And I, and I actually think it's, if that's what he thinks he's capable of doing, go for it. You know, as a marginalized individual and one who's always been excluded, you will not hear someone like me discourage someone from pursuing their dreams, whether they're realistic or not. And since this is a position where the constituents, the citizens of the Washington state get to vote, then they need to be informed and they need to decide what it is they want in a justice or judge. And um, I'll leave it at that. But I think it's on his bucket list. I have a lot of things on mine as well. <laughs> so do I. That's extraordinarily gracious of you. Uh, justice Montoya Lewis, how do you contrast yourself with your opponent? Well, you know, I, I think that um, that my, my race is very different. Uh, judge Larson has been a judge, uh, a municipal court judge uh, for a number of years. Um, and he's run for Superior Court and Supreme Court uh, several times. So it's, it's, it's clear he has aspirations beyond uh, what he's doing in, in municipal court. And I think that the, the way I contrast that, that work is, uh, you know, my, my experience is very broad. Um, I have experience as uh, a therapeutic drug court judge. I have experience um, with, with felony jury trials that have been murder and kidnapping uh, trials, the most serious kinds of cases. Uh, you know, and I have, um, I have experience uh, also as a teacher, as a professor, as someone who has been in the position of writing about the law as well as uh, t- explaining it and uh, training uh, law students how to be legal writers. So that kind of experience, that sort of academic uh, experience combined with the, uh, the lengthy experience I've had as a judge and, and in particular as a superior court judge, um, you know, in, in municipal court, um, uh, Judge Larson is um, presiding over uh, violations of city law in the, in the city of federal way. As a superior court judge, I'm presiding over all, all felonies of all kinds, complex civil litigation involving millions of dollars. Uh, making decisions um, as a judge about parenting plans, uh, complex divorce cases, child welfare. So, so the range is 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 significant. 
you know, and additionally, I, I'm a nationally recognized expert in domestic violence, child welfare, uh, juvenile justice, um, and uh, implicit bias and racial equity. And all of those things are things that I have taught at a national level. I've trained judges uh, how to be better decision makers. Uh, I've trained judges on the cycles of domestic violence at a national uh, level uh, all over the country. I present nationally on all kinds of issues. So I, I have a national profile that I think uh, really serves my role as a Supreme Court uh, justice and, uh, and puts me in, a, in I think, a, a very strong position to be able to see what we're doing in the state of Washington, both in terms of case law development that we do as a Supreme Court, as well as the administration of justice, which is the other side of what we do in the Supreme Court in this very broad context. Uh, and I, I think that experience is is unique, and I think it absolutely distinguishes me from my opponent. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I do have sort of a primer, kind of a Supreme State Supreme Court 101 type question that Justice Whitener, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that you can feel this with ease. Uh, what are some of the differentiating factors for people who don't know? What are some of the duties of the Supreme Court here in the state? How does it differ from the federal, the United States Supreme Court? What are some of the differences there? Well, first and foremost, we don't hear federal matters. That's one big difference. The Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court is the ultimate final arbiter of constitutional issues. And to be perfectly honest, of all legal issues, they can choose to take it up or not, and they have reasons why they will not. What happens here on the Supreme Court is we're the final decision maker in regards to state matters. You have the law courts, whether it's municipal district court, they then can go to superior court, you have superior court, uh, their court of review can be the court of appeals or in certain circumstances, they can come directly to the Supreme Court where we sit. The difference I think is the magnitude of uh, cases that we have to feel through. I would tend to think the state courts probably feel more of those cases than the US Supreme Court and in regards to the decision as far as what type of cases we take, it really comes down to about four things. Uh, the lower court's decision in conflict with another uh, case, some sort of precedent. Um, is there some sort of public interest that is worthy of review on the high court, whether it's the US Supreme Court or the state Supreme Court? Is there some, um, is there a law decision that was wrongly decided that did not follow precedent? And what's also interesting as well for this state Supreme Court and the US Supreme Court is something that I don't think a lot of people realize is we actually make law. And I'll be honest, I was not aware of that um, coming through the ranks. I learned that as a Superior Court judge that the you know, the state Supreme Court actually, under certain circumstances, make law. So under those circumstances, they're actually parallel with like the legislative, um, you know, the legislative division, because there are three branches of the legislative branch. That was new to me. But now that I'm there, I'm beginning to understand how that works. As a Superior Court judge, we're bound to follow the, the law that, Handing, handed down by the Supreme Court, whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court or the state Supreme Court. The interesting thing is, now that we're here on the state Supreme Court, certain circumstances, we can, our decisions or our opinions that we write, actually can create law, create precedent, or change precedent um, based on the circumstances that we're addressing. And I must admit that was new for me. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that type of power. <laughs> I think Justice Ontario Lewis has been exercising that power as a tribal court judge for years, but that is definitely new for me as a trial-oriented person. That certainly wasn't something that we were taught in civics class, that there was that sort of crossover uh, between yes. our, our tricameral system. Um, exactly. I'm curious to know... Because it is my understanding that the Supreme Court justices will take a collective vote on whether or not to hear a case and, and bring it before the 
state Supreme Court. What are your criteria in, in selecting matters to be heard uh, by the Supreme Court, Justice Whitener? Well, that's interesting because I, as a Superior Court judge, I am very rule-oriented. I'm very much into the law. I am very structured. I am uncomfortable in, in uh, stepping outside of my role. So in my new role that I'm learning, I'm formulating what really is, um, why am I here? And what impact can my presence make? And understanding now that I have the ability to create law and law that carries, <laughs> that can carry for generations, I am thinking of what the case brings. Does it have enough of a public import um, that warrants the court's review? Will it make um, good law? You know, not all law is good law. Will it change or move the agenda forward and the agenda for me is equality for all in all its form, um, because I have so many different parts of me, sometimes they conflict, and that's a challenge I'm facing right now, because what may be good for one part of me as, let's say, a black woman may not be good for the LGBT part of me. So um, I'm, I'm using my years of experience to remove myself from the equation as I try and figure out what my judi judicial um, voice on this level will be moving forward. So it's a work in progress for me, which is why you will not get a concrete answer. Um, I'm continually growing and I've only had one term and I've been told numerous times that my one term was unusual because of the format that you know, it has occurred in. But as it relates to the law, um, I am definitely, I am quite sure going to be very consistent in that. For me, it's, it's doing the right thing by all, the best way I can with the law that I'm faced with. And sometimes it will encompass all and sometimes it won't. I am going to put the same question to you, Justice Montoya-Lewis, but before I do, I want to welcome retired Snohomish County Superior Court Judge Tom Wynn. You are with us tonight, sir. Uh, good evening. So without expecting a concrete answer from you, uh, Justice Montoya-Lewis, either, um, can you talk about some of the criteria that you use to decide whether uh, you will vote to, to bring a, a case before the Supreme Court? Well, you know, one of the things that is, is sort of the most important about um, about the decision to take a case or not is, is whether or not you can count to five. It takes a vote of five people uh, in order for us to take a case. And so part of what I'm thinking about is, yes, this case might be interesting to me, but can I convince four other people that it should be interesting enough to them that we should, should hear the case? And, and that's been a real learning process for me because part of what I have to do in this role is to be an advocate uh, and to, to persuade uh, other justices that the case that I'm interested in taking is one um, that, that we should all hear. Uh, I, I'm really looking for cases where there is a question that really isn't answered either by statute or by the, the existing Washington state law. Uh, there are, I've seen many cases where I've thought uh, this, the, the way that this case was decided by the Court of Appeals, uh, you know, or, or that was decided by the Superior Court, or where, however it comes to us, uh, you know, was, is, is incorrect, and I want to correct it. And my colleagues are repeatedly say to me, we are not a court of error correction. We are a court that develops the law. And so I have to really think about, is this a place where we can push the law forward? Can we do something better? Uh, or is what has happened up to this point something that uh, we can leave alone and maybe a different case is going to come along that actually uh, is a case that presents the question in a better format or in a more compelling way. Um, so I really have to think about are, are, if we take this case and if I advocate for taking this case, are we going to be able to do uh, some good work with it? Or is it just presented to us in a way that uh, we're, we're not going to make things better or we're going to confuse the question or, uh, or I just think it's interesting to me, but I'm not going to be able to, to convince other people that, it, that we should hear it. 
I want to talk next about some specific issues, uh, but first, just if we have not made this clear enough for listeners, you are restricted in the ways that you can talk about personal opinions on political matters. Uh, This is laid out in something called Canon 7 in the Washington State Court Code of Judicial Conduct, which reads in part, I will excerpt this, candidates should not make pledges or promises in conduct of office in office other than the faithful and impartial performance of the duties of the office announce their views on disputed legal or political issues so I'm going to try to ask questions in accordance with this, and I'm going to rely on both of you to let you know if I've transgressed in any way. Uh, and, and I will start with a rather broad question, and Justice Whitener, we'll start with you on this. And, and we've touched on this already a little bit, but I'd like to drill deeper. In theory, we are all entitled to equal justice under the law, but opinions vary, certainly on whether that ideal is actually ever reached. What do you see as the greatest obstacles to equal justice in our society right now? acknowledging that we're not equal. And that's the flaw in the question you asked. Um, That's the flaw I have seen, and I I believe in how we address uh, equality in the law. We're not all coming from the same place. Many of us have institutional and structural and systemic barriers that we have to overcome. Equality lens is limiting, and um, utilizing it limits the individual you're using it on. Um, I think that's the best way I can say it. You know, um, I can give you examples in the law if you think about it. Um, The law looks at black individuals historically as unequal. That's why we had Brown versus Board of Education and those lines of cases. And yet we're still trying to address equality in education. And the the reason I think we have those problems is utilizing what I call equality lens. It's flawed. We are not coming from the same place. Women are not at the same place as men. Black people are not at the same place as white people. LGBT are not at the same place as heterosexual individuals. So as an outsider, as, you know, disenfranchised lens, I think equality is limited. Equity is probably a little better It gets you to a more fair analysis of situations. But I think that's also limiting as well. I think um, if we try to um, remove some of these institutional and structural barriers and try and get everyone to participate without um, all of these other things, then I think we would probably be in a better place. Um, There's a lot of training and teaching that has been going on in the judicial system, in the legal system to address some of these. But I think overall, utilizing equality as a, a, as a barometer to, to fixing some of these problems is problematic. I will never feel equal because I'm not coming from the same place as someone else. And as I've indicated, with all my marginalizations, black people were at the back of the bus. <laughs> You know, and we've had to work hard to overcome that to be now seated wherever we would like on the bus. That's a reality. So not to um, not to address an individual's reality, I think, is problematic. And that is why I'm not uh, much one for equality and equality lens approach to addressing imperfections in the system. I'm going to let that answer sit for just a moment uh, because I think it's extraordinarily profound. Um, Justice Montoya Lewis, I'm very curious to know how you would pick up the conversation from there because uh, I I think we have have seen very, very clearly. And I, I did intend to ask this question in a way that indicated what you uh, then went on to to state bluntly, uh, Justice Whitener, which is that we don't have equal justice under our system. And and so I'm wondering, uh, Justice Montoya-Lewis, speaking about the obstacles themselves to equal justice, how do you see those? And really, how do you see the the judiciary and and the judiciary's role in addressing those obstacles? I I think we have and serve a very important role in addressing those obstacles. You know, today is, uh, I've seen all over uh, social media and other places, a celebration of the 100th year of women's right to vote. And um, 
you know, I, I reflect on that because as a, as a Pueblo person, uh, Pueblos in New Mexico and Arizona did not get the right to vote until 1948. My father was born in 1939. Uh, so, you know, this is within living memory of, uh, of uh, my community's inability to uh, vote in, in free and fair elections um, in the lifetime of my, my, my dad. So, you know, that's a very stark reminder uh, that um, things have not been equal. Um, and, and my dad really raised me uh, to, you know, to understand that I had to work much harder uh, than an average person to be seen as average. Uh, and he, he wasn't particularly satisfied or impressed with average. So I've worked really, really hard to get to this point. Um, I, I think that judges should be leaders. And one thing that I've learned as a trainer of judges is, uh, is that when judges call a meeting, people show up. Uh, and we have to use that power um, to get people around a table. You know, as, as a Native person, I was the only Native person on the state court judiciary at any level for the entire five years that I was a superior court judge. So I was almost always the only Native person in the room, and I was very frequently the only person of color in the room, and almost always the only woman of color in the room. So it, it really became clear to me that the conversation changes when there's someone in the room that has had the experiences that I had. And just to give you an example of that, I was regularly stopped by people walking on the street when I was parked in my reserved parking spot outside the courthouse uh, who would challenge me about whether or not I had the right to park there. These were not people who were invested with the responsibility to enforce parking laws. These were random people who would say, you know, that's a reserved spot. Um, and I had people often in the courthouse uh, itself, even when I was wearing a badge and one time when I was standing in front of my own picture, ask me if I needed to find the public defender's office. So I've been told in countless ways that I don't belong where I am. Uh, and, and these are in small ways and in very significant ways. And so I think it is incumbent upon me as a judge and as a justice to speak about that experience because that's not an experience that is reflected in everyone else's experience. And so if that's the experience that I have with the kind of positional power that I have, what is the experience of, you know, the 15-year-old Native kid who gets picked up for, uh, you know, graffitiing the school? Uh, it, it's certainly going to be worse. So I think we have to talk about these things uh, as judges, and I think we have to get people to the table, and I think we have to commit to doing something, not just naming the problem, but commit to changing it. Uh, and I can't do that myself. I can't change racism against people of color. That's not, it's not, it's not possible for me to do it, and it's not uh, my role. But I can affect the legal system in my job, and I can get other judges to care about it. Uh, not everybody's going to care about it to the degree that I do, but, but certainly I can move people forward, and I think that that's part of my responsibility. I'm similarly moved to let your words um, remain uh, for just a moment. I believe what you're speaking about here is the bully pulpit, um, as mm -hmm. somebody who sits on the su the Supreme Court in our state, and when you when you say that you are calling attention to th these these issues of inequity, uh, and you're talking about it, I, I move to ask you in in what context? In what context? Because you're not certainly talking about it from the bench. I don't imagine. Are you? Are you? You mean as a public figure then? I'm absolutely talking about it from the bench. Okay, then then, then I, can you elaborate I, on yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, not to sort of throw, uh, you know, throw out a stereotype here, but it, it's not really a stereotype. Native people are storytellers. We communicate through story. We communicate through humor. That is foundational uh, to who I am. So when I make rulings, when I was a superior court judge and I made rulings, there were two things that were very important to me. One was that I made those rulings clear. I mean that any, everybody agreed with me, but I wanted people to understand what my rulings were. And the second was that I, that I needed people to understand or I wanted people to understand why I was making the rulings that I was making. And sometimes that meant that I spoke about uh, what my values were in terms of how that, um, that led me to interpret the law or uh, you know, impose a sentence that I chose to impose or come to a conclusion that I came to. 
as a, as a uh, as a judge presiding over drug court, I spoke regularly about uh, who I who I was. I shared parts of my story, and some are some things I don't share. Um, but I, yes, absolutely, that comes uh, from me in, on the bench. And, and in tribal courts, I was much more free. I'm much more limited as a state court judge. But in tribal courts, I was much more free to do that, and I did it very, very frequently because I, I think that is part of my role to humanize the role of the judge. Uh, you know, as I said, I never met a judge before I or a lawyer before I went to law school. They seemed like they were superhuman. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm sitting in this role. I know we're not superhuman. I, I know that I'm just a person, but for a couple of different decisions, I could easily be on the other side of the bench. So it, it, it is important to me that people hear that and understand that. And not everybody has the same story, uh, that I have by any stretch. Um, but I, I, I think that we have to name these things from from the bench. And then I think we have to do it in public as well. I think it's, it's both, uh, because I can't sit on the bench, uh, and, and not, um, pay attention to what's happening in the courtroom when there are things that come up and, and, you know, all kinds of things do. Um, and so you have to figure out how you're going to manage that. Are you going to say, you know, if, if lawyers are doing something that you think is a problem that is, um, reinforcing stereotypes that are related to the person who's on trial. You can't talk about that with the lawyers in front of a jury. So you get the jury out of there and you have a conversation, but you can't ignore it. Um, and I think we have a history in this country of ignoring it. So that's certainly not something I do. It's certainly not something Justice Whitener does. We talk about those things regularly. You mentioned juries, and I, I have a very specific question about jury composition. And Justice Whitener, um, because only a fraction of cases make it to a jury trial, um, it's my understanding that uh, per uh, a study by the Pew Research, only 2% of criminal cases ever make it to trial. Most are settled out of court uh, with 90% of defendants pleading guilty. Um, jury composition very, very much matters. Um, do you believe that the composition of juries fairly reflects our society, and, and why or why not? Oh, it doesn't, not at all. Having been a litigator, I can say from firsthand experience that uh, the composition of the juries in Washington state has always been problematic, especially um, you know, based on my experience. The person of color or the disabled individual will get excluded. The person of color that does make it onto a panel that comes up for voir dire ends up being number 45 and you only get to pick through number 25. Um, but the reason behind that is a little deeper than um, most people think. Um, it has a lot to do with, of course, the person's um, race, um, because that's obvious, or gender. But what people don't think about in regards to the composition of our jury and what impacts it is economics. It is a privilege to be able to be a juror. You know, everybody, every citizen, I'm quite sure would love to sit on a jury. You know, they have that right. The problem is many can't afford to do so. You know, being paid $10 an hour for jury service when you're holding down three jobs to take care of your family. Um, you don't have time. There's absolutely no way you can participate in this civic activity that is so integral to the system of justice. Um, you know, you have children and, you know, court runs from nine to four. Let's say we need the jurors in there. Unless you have a job at Boeing or a teacher working for the government, um, you can't participate in this very important process that our system utilizes. And until we figure out how to fix that, $10 a day, $10 a day, I want you to, to digest that, $10 a day for someone who does not have an employer that can cover that cost, cannot participate. And when you think of it, a large subset of our, of our um, constituents are falling into that category. And it's disproportionately reflected by race and gender and the stereotypes that we're trying to bring into the court to have them participate and disability. So um, until we, we either pay them 
what it's worth. And then the system, of course, appears to not have the funds, or if they do, they try to get it on the backs of these same individuals by imposing fines. Until we do, we will have a problem of having a jury of one's peers and what that truly means. It does not have to mean that because you're black, you're gonna have to have 12 black individuals hear your case, but you need to have a nice variation of the community that you're coming from whether they're elderly, whether they're female, whether they're straight, whether they're from this country or not, um, whether they're able-bodied or have some sort of disability that can be accommodated by the court. Until we can get that, then the answer to that question is no. It is not representative of the people that um, it serves. It's flawed. Justice Montoya Lewis, I wonder if I might get you to uh, comment on the Pew Research uh, data that I just alluded to about criminal cases making it to trial, and I'll repeat that. Uh, Only 2% of criminal cases ever make it to trial and most are settled out of court. 90% of defendants plead guilty. What is your assessment of this outcome, and would you like to see a change in this dynamic? Well, you know, I think it's a complicated uh, thing to, to, to explain. And what I would say is, is one of the things that concerns me the most about that is that I worry that the length of time it takes to get from someone being charged with a crime to actually getting to a trial can be extraordinary. And if someone is being held on pretrial, um, pretrial bail that they can't make, uh, you know, I, I really have a significant concern that there are people who are pleading guilty because they will get a sentence for the time that they've already served and they get out. Um, it, it is certainly uh, my job or was my job as a, as a judge to be sure that someone was pleading guilty freely. But I wonder uh, what that means when we have people, um, you know, being held sometimes uh, for months and months for something that they would serve 30 days for um, if they if they pled. Um, so, so that very much concerns me. I can't tell you how often that happens because uh, that's not data that I know how to track or that anybody really tracks well, but it, it definitely, um, it's definitely something that gives me great pause. You know, the other thing I think uh, is, is that, um, you know, prosecutors are, are, driven by getting convictions. And so that makes me wonder about what they charge. And they have tremendous discretion about what they choose to charge, and, and that is as it should be, and that's how, how the, the statutes and the Constitution are laid out. Um, but I, I, would, I have certainly heard complaints from members of the public when I've been uh, you know, out and about uh, over the time that I've been a judge, um, you know, is that they they sometimes decline cases that they think are going to be difficult uh, to get to conviction, and so the those those statistics certainly don't reflect um, anything about what we are doing in terms of uh, you know charging all crimes that occur in our society. We're not anywhere close to that. Uh, so I think there's a lot of complicating factors that come in that really. Um, that really do concern me about what we're doing in our criminal system, particularly when we're seeing, or I, you know, I was uh, often seeing the same people over and over again. Um, we certainly weren't helping them. Uh, they were often pleading uh, to the same kinds of crimes, you know, drug possession, those kinds of things, serving a few, uh, a month or something, getting out and coming back. Um, so, so those statistics were not doing anything. The 90% pleading guilty statistic wasn't doing anything to solve the problem. I was shocked when I looked up to see the, the clock because this hour has simply flown <laughs> yeah. by. Uh, and, and I honestly, I could speak with the both of you um, for a, another hour. I know we only have five minutes left. And I do want to get to what I consider to be a very, very important question. And I would like to get both of your thoughts on this. And we'll start with you, Justice Whitener. The U.S. Pop, the U.S. has a we know this has a disproportionate number of, of black men and women behind bars. This was a separate uh, 2020 Pew Research study that indicated that black people represent between 12 and 13 percent of the population, but 33 percent of the prison population. How do you feel our society should address this? 
Well, I think it piggybacks off of the question you just asked, Justice Montoya Lewis, and her initial response to you tonight is that representation matters. And it's important that we have representation of people of color on all aspects and all parts of the criminal justice system and the justice system at large. So the reflection you see in the data that you've, um, you've discussed, and it shows people of color or black individuals being incarcerated at a higher number than they are reflective in the community. Think of who are the gatekeepers. First, they have to have contact with law enforcement. Then they have to have contact once they are contacted and arrested by prosecutors. And then they have to have representation by or no representation, depending on their circumstance. And then they walk into a courtroom and who's on the bench. So at different parts of the justice system, they're not even seeing themselves. And it starts even from the point of contact with law enforcement who brings them into the criminal justice system. So we're disproportionately reflected. That does not mean to say we're committing crimes more than other ethnicities. It just means that we are stopped and contacted and our contact is treated differently than it is with other groups, other ethnicities. And um, that's why representation matters. That's why Justice Montoya Lewis and I work very hard in trying to reach out and empower and inspire others to the legal profession, to the judiciary. Um, being first is not easy, but being first is very important when we take it on and we try to make that difference. Justice Montoya Lewis, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? I think Justice Whitener, you know, re really laid it out clearly, and and I think that it is really an important uh, thing to acknowledge. And I want to underscore what she said that 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 you know the FBI data, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, all of the data that has looked at crimes that are sort of what we call uncharged crimes. They're looking at crimes generally. Um, it really does show that there is not one group of people, when you break it down by race, that commit more crimes than others. So the fact that we have disproportionate representation um, of people in prisons, of, of Black people in prisons, of Native people in prisons, we see these numbers that are disproportionate when compared to the percentage of people they make up in, in society. Um, we we have to acknowledge that there is a problem that it, that is uh, going on, and it's it's not just about who's on the bench. It's also about or who's you know who law enforcement is. It's about the beliefs that they bring to those jobs, and that's a hard thing to say. None of us want to admit to or recognize uh, necessarily the things uh, that go through our minds uh, that we probably not want to give voice to. But I think we have to have frank and honest conversations about those things. I think that that has to be the start. Uh, I, I, I have really spent a lot of time in my career wondering why it is so difficult to admit that we hold uh, those things because it's it's not uh, it's not our fault. You know, you're, we're in just flooded with uh, imagery and you know societal beliefs and stories, and you know, it's just it, 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 we are all affected by this. If we don't begin to talk about that uh, and, and address that in a frank and honest way, I, I don't see those statistics changing much. Yeah, and indeed, I, I think we could have spent the entire hour on that question alone. Uh, I would like to end on a question from, we have a 16-year-old uh, junior in high school who has a question for us this evening. Oh, yeah. um, and this comes from Lodedria, and I believe this is Lodedria's child who wants to know, how will you go about getting a younger audience interested in the Supreme Court during COVID? Uh, oh, it's for my son. Okay, the question is for my son uh, attending school mm -hmm. online during COVID. Um, Justice Whitener, would you like to speak to that? Well, as you know, I teach civics at Lincoln High School, and during COVID, my, my classes actually ended when COVID um, started. But I still have Zoom conferences and Zoom meetings with students. Um, tomorrow, I will be pledging in the University of Massachusetts first-year law students um, into law school. I make myself available. I did it in person, and now I can do more via Zoom because I can be all over the country and internationally via Zoom. 
So it's just making yourself um, available and mentoring is huge, you know, so that continues. And I know many of the Supreme Court justices reach out to young ones and ask that they reach out to us and we will chat with them, time permitting. And once COVID goes away, they get tours, they can come in and meet with us. Um, I think it's really important for people of color to meet their justices of color because they're not used to seeing as Justice Montoya uh, Lewis, in the, Montoya Lewis indicated that um, she'd never known a judge. There are many, many, many who have never met a lawyer, much less a judge, and to think a Supreme Court justice. So we're here, we're available, and we, we look forward to meeting the young ones. Well, this young man's name is Zechariah, and uh, if if we may, uh, offline, yes. we, we'd like to put uh, him in touch. Um, and, and I would just Definitely. ask, uh, I, I assume that you echo the same sentiment, Justice Montoya-Lewis? Absolutely, yes. All right, terrific. You know, I, just in the very, very few remaining moments that we have, I, both of you received just pages and pages of endorsements. I would encourage people to go onto your websites. It's just profound. I will ask both of you in closing uh, if you would talk about maybe one or two endorsements that really meant something to you. Um, Justice Montoya-Lewis, uh, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, think I will point to one uh, that's a fairly recent endorsement, and, and that is from retired Supreme Court Justice Jerry Alexander, who was a chief justice um, for the Washington State Supreme Court for a long period of time and, and led the court with tremendous grace and leadership. Um, you know, I, I had a long conversation uh, with Justice Alexander about who I am as a justice, what I, what my judicial philosophy is, and what I think the role of the court is. Um, you know, these endorsements are endorsements uh, that are meaningful because people really consider uh, before they, they make an endorsement. Um, justice Alexander uh, and I have very different uh, views uh, on a lot of things, but he came to to conclude that he, I was someone he wanted to have on the court because of the, the thoughtfulness I bring to the court and my, my leadership and my experience. Um, and so I'm very appreciative and grateful of that, as, as well as the other uh, retired and current Supreme Court justices who, who support me. Uh, you know, I'm also very proud of um, being supported by um, the National Women's Political Caucus, um, and you know they had a, a, a very rigorous process um, to go through in order to receive their endorsement. They were very careful about their endorsements and very thoughtful, and so it felt uh, like quite an achievement to receive those endorsements. And, and that said, I just will say that you know when you look at our endorsements, both for both of us. The legislative district endorsements, uh, the endorsements from organizations uh, of all kinds, require that we typically go through a lengthy questionnaire that we submit, as well as an interview with those with those folks. Um, it, it is a rigorous process, um, but I just have to say, and I, I think I led with this, that it has been incredibly exciting and inspiring to see the level of engagement. Uh, from all of those leg legislative districts and organizations in in this particular election. They really understand how much it matters. It really does matter to what happens moving forward in the state of Washington. Uh, so that those endorsements, all of them are, are important and, and um, well considered. Before I move on to Justice Whitener, I will ask you, where can people learn more about your campaign? Can you give us your URL? Yes, it's Justice Montoya Lewis, all run together with no hyphen. So justicemontoyalewis.com. Uh, and uh, there's also a Facebook page uh, that is retained Justice Montoya Lewis. And, um, and there's also an Instagram as well. So I uh, encourage you to take a look at all of those. Um, and I, I also just will uh, underscore that I am um, always open to hearing from you as well. Thank you. Thank you. I, I keep meaning to take the leap into Instagram myself. I haven't quite made it there yet. Uh, Justice Whitener, uh, the same question for you. Uh, one or two endorsements of the many, many endorsements that you got on, on your, uh, your, that are listed on your webpage. Just, just a couple that are particularly meaningful for you. You know, you put me in a bind because <laughs> I work really hard to earn each and every one of them. It's a rigorous vetting process. But um, if I had to pick one, I would say uh, the endorsement I received from veteran civil rights attorney, Lem Howell. Um, 
He reminds me of Thurgood Marshall before he got to the Supreme Court and his legacy that he has left in Washington state, um, the legal legacy and for black lawyers, uh, I think is unprecedented. And I'd like to take that charge since I was always an advocate and a litigator and use that moving forward to formulate who I am at this level in line with Turgood Marshall. So I think um, receiving Mr. Howell's um, endorsement was was uh, a coup de croix, so to speak, mm. coup de croix, however you say. But um, I'm pleased that I have the endorsement of the Supreme Court justices. They did not have to because I was brand new. So it was nice <laughs> to get their endorsement. And um, I love the fact that I have um, endorsements from community leaders, activists, as well as from unions, um, legislators. It just was a, a very rigorous process um, being challenged by all these different groups. So it's difficult to pick one or two, but uh, that would be my take on that. I really worked hard for those and I enjoyed getting them and being challenged by all of the individuals I met on this process. It comes as no surprise to me that you worked hard. You, you seem like somebody who has an extraordinary <laughs> work ethic. Uh, I will ask you where people can learn more about you. What's your URL? Well, I think it's just what I stand for. Keep Justice Widener or Keep Widener for Justice. I'm very easy to find. You can Google my name, Justice Widener, and my history just comes up because I've been very transparent since getting to the judiciary. So you can still find me. Just put in my name. But if not, it's Keep justiceweitner.com. Well, I said at the outset, everybody, that I was going to try to illuminate to you uh, just how enthusiastic I am about these two judicial candidates and why we absolutely need to work as hard as we can to make sure that they stay on the bench. I will also say in closing, this has absolutely been one of the most engaging conversations that I have had in a long, long time. I want to thank you both deeply and sincerely. Justice G. Helen Whitener, thank you so much. Thank you. And Justice Raquel Montoya-Lewis, thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Will Casey, Aaron Albanese, and Jason Ritterizer. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. My thanks this week to Catherine Fysiers. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.